My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Aaron Lakoff. Think, for a moment, about hockey. Maybe what springs to mind is early morning practices, the sounds of blades on ice, or the feel of taking the perfect slap shot from the point. Or maybe it's watching with friends and a beer, competitive joking with colleagues during a tight playoff series, and he shoots, he scores. For a lot of people, though, whether fans of the game or not, other, less savory associations come to mind as well. Reactionary rants from Don Cherry, for instance or toxic masculinity in the change room and in fan spaces. And one thing that probably does not come to mind is social justice. Aaron Lakoff is a longtime community organizer and independent journalist based in Montreal. As a kid growing up in Toronto, he fit a particular Canadian stereotype. He almost literally could skate before he could walk, he played rec hockey, and he cheered avidly for the Toronto Maple Leafs, a loyalty he has as a Montrealer since disavowed. He was politicized in his teens in the 1990s. He got heavily involved in organizing against the far right via the group Anti-Racist Action, with its combination of street militants and radical youth culture, and was swept up in the political ferment of the resistance to the Mike Harris conservative government in Ontario. At that stage of his life, he saw these two things in which he was passionately invested, sports and radical activism, as being, quote, diametrically opposed. And because of that, gradually, his involvement in hockey faded away. In the last number of years, however, that has begun to change. Thanks to encounters and then sustained engagement with the work of some sports activists and sports journalists, he began to realize there is nothing mutually exclusive about liking sports and being involved in activism and organizing. And not only does that mean that these days he is cheering loudly for the Habs and playing rec hockey again, but it also led him to his latest media project. He recently launched a podcast on hockey and social justice called Changing on the Fly. The overall goal of the podcast is to use interviews with athletes, fans, activists, and scholars to explore questions of social justice as they relate to hockey, and also to use sports as a lens to think through issues of social justice in the broader society. For instance, the first episode of Changing on the Fly was called The Game We Love on Stolen Land, and it explored the complicated relationship between settler colonialism and hockey. And the second episode does a deep dive into questions of race and racism in hockey, including hearing about the little-known history of how the Coloured Hockey League in 19th century Nova Scotia made pivotal contributions to the development of the game. Lakoff believes that sports have vast potential as sites for social justice organizing, something that progressives and radicals in North America have largely ignored. And he hopes that the conversations catalyzed by changing on the fly can be one small part of efforts to shift hockey culture and sports culture more generally towards reflecting values of justice and liberation. I speak with Lakoff about hockey and social justice, 
and about the Changing on the Fly podcast. My name is Aaron Lakoff. I am a grassroots community organizer, activist, and independent journalist based in Montreal. My work touches on a lot of different issues. Over the years, I've been really involved in migrant justice, anti-racist, and anti-fascist organizing. But lately, while I still do a lot of that work, my attention has been turned a lot more to organizing within the sports world and looking at sports as not only a useful lens that I think we can use to understand issues in society, but also as really fertile ground for social justice organizing. And that is exactly what I've been doing with a new podcast that I just launched at the beginning of October called Changing on the Fly, which is a podcast that explores the intersections between social justice and hockey. So I'm originally from Montreal, but grew up in Toronto. And I got mostly politicized through the ARA scene in Toronto in the 90s, which is anti-racist action. In Toronto in the 90s, there was an upsurge in really scary fascist groups that were you know, carrying out attacks and violence against communities of color in Toronto. And so the ARA was popping up all over North America at that time. Anti-racist action was really, really active in Toronto because Toronto was one of the seats of power of this white power movement. And the ARA was a street movement to confront all that. But where I really got on board was more through its cultural organizing. So it was putting on a lot of punk and ska and hip hop shows to really create like a youth culture of resistance to fascism and racism. Also in the Mike Harris years in Toronto, a lot of strikes happening and I was in high school and I participated in a lot of those teacher strikes and walkouts. But maybe to jump back a couple of years, I was a huge hockey fan before that. There's this joke in Canada that kids learn to skate before they learn to walk. And I would almost include myself in that. I started playing hockey so young and I played in rec leagues growing up and always really loved it. I'm embarrassed to say now that I was a Toronto Maple Leafs fan because I've, of course, flipped in the years since I moved back to Montreal and I've become a Montreal Canadiens fan again. But anyways, hockey was just such a huge part of my life and a big love of my life. And I think when I got really involved in radical politics, especially after moving to Montreal and becoming much more involved in organizing, I saw those two things, you know, sports and radical activism as being diametrically opposed. The idea being, and I think this view is actually still shared on a lot of the left, is how can you be involved or interested or a fan of sports when clearly sports are, you know, huge bastions of machismo, of sexism, patriarchy, capitalism, racism in a lot of cases. I think I very much felt that. I just kind of like shunted hockey for a lot of my life. And then it's only really been in the last few years, partly because of the amazing work of other sports activists and sports journalists, that I've actually really felt that I could stitch these two parts of my identity back together and say, no, there's nothing mutually exclusive about liking sports and being interested in activism. And quite the contrary, there's actually a lot of really exciting movements that we're seeing. And that's where I came to changing on the fly, looking at hockey, because I think the way that hockey actually really differs from a lot of sports around the world is that it actually is quite a conservative culture. 
within tons of sports, whether it's, you know, American football, like the NFL or football, i.e. soccer around the world, the ball kind of swings both ways. You can have very left-wing movements and very right-wing movements. But in hockey, we haven't really seen much of a progressive voice over its history. And so I wanted to investigate that, challenge that, and hopefully spark a conversation around it. I think the work of, like I was saying, a couple of journalists in particular have really inspired me. One being Dave Zirin, who is maybe the most well-known radical sports journalist out there today. And then also another amazing Toronto-based journalist, Shireen Ahmed, who has an incredible blog called Tales of a Hijabi Footballer. She does a lot of work looking specifically at Muslim women in sports because you know she is a Muslim woman football player. She also focuses on a lot of other different sports. And she co-hosts this amazing podcast called Burn It All Down, which is a feminism and sports podcast. But also then, of course, I couldn't be talking about any of this without mentioning Colin Kaepernick and seeing the powerful stance, or rather lack thereof of a stance during the national anthem that Kaepernick did when he started to refuse to stand for the national anthem in protest of police brutality and systemic racism in the U.S. And then, of course, that just started to spread like wildfire throughout the NFL, throughout other sports as well. And that created a new watershed moment that we hadn't seen in a generation, right? Like I wasn't alive when John Carlos and Tommy Douglas, right, like the two Black American track and field stars raised their fist on the medal podium in the 1968 Olympics. But that was a huge watershed moment. And of course, in the 60s, you couldn't be talking about any of this without talking about Muhammad Ali, the most famous draft dodger in U.S. history. People like Billie Jean King, who were resisting patriarchy in tennis, and how Serena Williams continues to do that today. But in hockey, we haven't really seen Kaepernick's yet. And I start to ask myself why this is. So you've alluded a few times to the conservative character of hockey culture. And whether it's Don Cherry or toxic masculinity or whatever else, I'm sure we can all think of examples. But given that, what openings do you see for exploring connections between hockey and social justice? Don Cherry is a prime example of what's wrong with hockey culture in Canada. He has been the voice of broadcasting in hockey for a few decades now. And Don Cherry, of course, promotes very nationalistic that often border on xenophobic views, sexist patriarchal views, homophobic views, anti-left-wing views. Don Cherry occupying that space on weekly national television has been a big problem. And so I think that there is a huge need to bring other voices to the forefront. I'm often doubtful that we're going to find those voices in the professional leagues, especially in the NHL, because the NHL, and specifically with its current commissioner, Gary Bettman, has been really, really good at silencing dissent and making sure that we have this very docile league where players aren't going to speak out. And so it was really interesting one year ago when Donald Trump famously called these black NFL athletes sons of bitches for refusing to stand for the anthem. And that sparked even more outrage in the sports world. 
So at that time, several black players within the National Hockey League, and you know, it's important to say that there actually aren't that many black players in a league with about 700 players in total. There's about, I think, 30 of them right now that are not just black, but people of color in general. And so within those few black players, they started to actually have public conversations about whether or whether they weren't going to take a knee. JT Brown from the Tampa Bay Lightning became the one and only player in the NHL to raise his fist during the U.S. National Anthem during one of their pregames last year. And that was extremely significant because it was, again, kind of like this watershed moment. It created a lot of waves, a lot of controversy, but opened up a pretty important conversation. So I think an action like JT Brown's action provides a very small opening to at least start to talk about these issues in the hockey world. But I think beyond that, we can't necessarily look to the professional leagues for the most inspiring examples. I think a lot of the inspiring examples are going to come out of either amateur leagues or women's professional leagues. Because even if you look, for example, at the CWHL, which is the Canadian Women's Hockey League, our professional women's hockey league here in Canada, for decades, there's actually been a lot of really progressive steps that people have taken in order to ensure more equality within the sport. We've seen a lot more work done against homophobia in women's hockey Now the CWHL has its first transgender player, which I think is really significant because it's very hard to picture professional men's sports being trans-inclusive. There's just much more of like a welcoming community vibe when you go to see women's professional games versus like when you go to an NHL arena and you're just completely bombarded by in-your-face toxic advertising. Also really significant is that the U.S. women's national hockey team actually went on a labor strike last year. And this is very significant. And they won that strike really quickly. These are openings that we need to look at and examine and learn from. Tell listeners a bit about the topics that the early episodes of Changing on the Fly have covered. My podcast, Changing on the Fly, it's not intended to be just for Canadian audiences. But when we talk about hockey, we're largely talking about Canada. We call it Canada's game, Canada's pastime. But of course, here in Canada, we're living on stolen Indigenous land. And what the very first episode of the podcast I put out is really looking at is how these issues of colonialism, nationalism, and hockey, how they're all intertwined. And it's fascinating, right? Like we can look at it from a few different angles. But to give you an example, I was out in Alberta last April, and I got a chance to attend the Alberta Native Hockey Championships in Edmonton. I've been to a few of these Indigenous tournaments around Turtle Island. I think they're absolutely beautiful and fascinating because you go to these tournaments and you get a sense of how amazing and how powerful hockey is and how important hockey is in Indigenous communities. But I've always wondered, like, what does that mean to say that hockey is Canada's game and then apply that to the fact that a lot of these Indigenous players do not see themselves as subjects of the Canadian state? I tried to look a lot at that. One thing that I found really fascinating being at that Alberta tournament is seeing the way that logos or mascots were used, because this is a huge problem in North American sports right now. But what was really fascinating at the Alberta championships is just seeing this kind of reappropriation of all these racist indigenous logos and mascots. A lot of teams actually just blatantly ripping off the Blackhawks logo and using it, maybe saying like, this actually kind of belongs to our communities. And so we're just going to use this as a logo, but actually as a source of real pride. 
and a lot of team names like the Chiefs and the Tomahawks that normally like if it weren't indigenous teams using those logos and that imagery, it would be cultural appropriation. But in this sense, it was kind of like a really interesting cultural reappropriation. So that's one thing that I was exploring. And then another thing, of course, I think is really crucial to talk about is hockey's role in residential schools and how hockey was brought into residential schools very intently as a weapon of assimilation and colonization. And so as we try to come to terms as a nation or as settlers with the history of residential schools and seeing their continuing legacy, In the hockey world, we have to come to terms with how hockey was weaponized. Priests would bring hockey into residential schools as a way to assimilate Indigenous kids into Canadian culture, into the dominant Canadian culture, but also to tire kids out because there were so many kids resisting and running away. And so they figured if we give them a really intense sport, it's going to tire them out, they'll have less energy. So for this, I was really relying heavily on the amazing work of a few scholars who have done research around this. People like Janice Forsyth and Brayden Tahili out of Lakehead University have written amazing stuff about this really nasty history of hockey in residential schools. And looking at the calls to action of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, one of those calls to action that I really take as personal responsibility as someone who is a sports journalist, it says that Sports journalists, be they settlers like myself or Indigenous people, we have to do the work of telling the histories of Indigenous people in sport in Canada. And so that is something that I'm really hoping to fulfill with Changing on the Fly. The second episode is kind of a deeper look at race and racism in hockey, looking at the absence to a large extent of any kind of anti-racist politic within the NHL and why that is, looking at you know the history of the Colored Hockey League, Another journalist who I had the pleasure of meeting is Damon Kwame Mason, who lives in Toronto. And he did this amazing documentary called Soul on Ice, which is all about essentially the past, present, and future of Black athletes in hockey. Damon told me all about this incredible history that I had not known of before meeting him about the Colored Hockey League, which existed in Nova Scotia in the late 1800s and early 1900s. It was essentially born out of segregation because Black Nova Scotians were not allowed to play with white hockey players. And so they just formed their own leagues. And that league ended up actually being incredibly innovating in the sense that it really changed the game of hockey. The slap shot was first invented in the Colored Hockey League. The butterfly style of goaltending, which essentially means goalies being allowed to drop down on the ice to stop a puck, that was first developed in the Colored Hockey League. And you can't even fathom hockey today without players taking slap shots or goalies being able to get down on the ice to stop a puck. And that history came out of this history of racial segregation, but also of Black excellence in hockey. And I think that's so crucial that we tell that history because I think it kind of demystifies this idea that hockey always has been and always will be a very white sport. Episodes that are coming up touch on a lot of really exciting things. I've devoted a whole episode to looking at homophobia in hockey and initiatives that challenge homophobia in hockey and challenge toxic masculinity. I have an episode coming up that I recorded as a live panel that looks at 
feminism in hockey and women in sports journalism. And that one was a lot of fun because we did that with some prominent women sports journalists here in Montreal and also with the general manager of Les Canadiennes, which is our women's professional hockey team here in Montreal. That was a fascinating panel to put that out. Other issues that I'm hoping to look at include this issue of stadiums and the impact that stadiums or arenas have on gentrification and have on the life of cities. The case point that I used for that was Edmonton. I was out in Edmonton earlier this year and looking at the new arena that Edmonton built called Rogers Place and how they essentially just displaced a whole urban indigenous community to build this arena like right on top of this community in the middle of the downtown. And oftentimes these arenas are funded by public money, but privately owned. And so I think we as people who live in cities have to seriously contest and resist this. We're also going to have the FIFA World Cup doing a few matches in Canada in 2026. And so I think people have to get really organized to not allow this corporate thievery to happen then. So that's going to be a big issue. But yeah, those are some of the different issues that I'm looking at. And then I think we're just going to kind of see where it goes from there as the podcast moves forward. I'm really hoping to kind of reach people beyond the already politicized crowd. I hope that Changing on the Fly will become a platform for these voices who have been left out throughout hockey's history to come together, to amplify themselves, and to share this knowledge and these histories of the sport. I was intrigued when you were talking about the fact that you became politicized in the anti-racist action milieu, a context where there was a tight connection between militants on the streets and cultural political interventions. As someone whom I know is still involved in and supportive of street politics today, how do you see the importance of more cultural spheres for movements that are trying to change the world? So things like hockey, for instance, and also things like podcasting. I think it's really important that the left, or people with radical politics, be invested in all different aspects of culture, be it filmmaking, be it music, be it sports. And I think that, again, sports has been oftentimes neglected by the left. I think that investment in different levels of culture is one way of taking activism out of subcultures. When I talked about the anti-racist action in Toronto in the 90s, I do recognize that that was very much like a subculture that was particular to its time and place. And we're not going to win masses of people over just with subcultures. Radical movements can not just be reduced to punk rock shows and zines. We really have to get out there in the world and we have to be where people are. And again, with sports, sports is a site where millions, if not billions of people are paying attention. With regards to podcasting, I'm really excited about that because I see it as a medium that's really starting to explode and take off. Just a statistic that I love to throw around because I think it's actually pretty significant. There was a market survey done by the Knight Foundation in 2016. And they found that in recent years, 96 million Americans downloaded a podcast that year. So that's like almost a quarter of the population. And I think that number is only going to grow. And so we actually are starting to see the emergence of podcasting as a mass medium. It's an incredibly accessible medium, meaning that they're really affordable to produce and they're really easy to produce and a lot more people are paying attention to them. You know, Apple Podcasts is a wash in sports podcasts right now. And so in that sense, it presents a challenge too, because when there's this glut of podcasts out there, it's a little bit hard to get your own podcast recognized or to get a lot of attention on it. 
But what I really do like about podcasting as well is that you can kind of get out there in the world with, I don't like to say more niche ideas, but let's say ideas that speak to people who feel that there haven't been media that has really amplified their voices to that same extent in the past. I just think that it's a great medium for that, and I'm really excited about it. So I know a couple of people who are big soccer fans and who are very involved in grassroots politics themselves, and they look really longingly at the kinds of supporter clubs with vibrant working-class left politics that they have in some places in Europe. What potential do you think there is in North America in general and in connection with hockey in particular for something along those lines? I'm glad you brought up supporter clubs because I think they're kind of crucial to the whole sports and activism conversation. If we look at the situation with football or soccer in Europe, it's pretty unique in some ways there because when we talk about sports as a site of organization, unfortunately, it was really the far right that got very invested in organizing in sports in a lot of European countries. And so you know, the British National Party was going to a lot of different football stadiums throughout the UK, handing out flyers and trying to win over working class white youth into fascist movements throughout the 1970s and 80s. Similar things were happening in France and Italy, where there were growing fascist movements. And so what anti-fascists had to do was to try to reclaim the stadiums to drive those fascist elements out. And they succeeded to a large extent, especially in the UK with creating these anti-fascist and anti-racist supporter clubs and bringing that really exciting culture into the game. You can look to clubs like Liverpool is a great example of that, where they have a very like militant working class and anti-racist subculture to them, or I shouldn't say subculture, it's a real culture within their sport. The Celtic team in Glasgow, similar. And so I think it might be hard to replicate that culture in North America, because for a long time, we luckily haven't seen the rise of the far right to the same extent that we've seen it in France or that we've seen it in Italy or some of those countries that I mentioned. But now, of course, here we are in 2018, and we're talking about the Trump government, we're talking about the alt-right, and we just elected a horribly racist provincial government here in Quebec with François Legault and the CAQ, Doug Ford in Ontario, right? And so while I wouldn't go so far as to say that those people are out and out fascists, they are, of course, emboldening a new resurgence of fascism and the alt-right here in North America. And I think it'll be interesting to see what happens like if that alt-right actually starts to try to penetrate into the sports world. Maybe to a certain degree, they don't really need to because, again, sports culture in North America already is so toxic. The jump between like Don Cherry and the Ford family is not very far because Don Cherry is already a huge supporter of the Ford family, as we know. So I think the next few years are going to be really crucial as we see these rises in far-right governments and far-right movements here at home to see how that gets reflected in the sports world and see what we can do to really try to model sports in the world that we want to see, right? Like with values of openness, tolerance, gender plurality, sexual plurality. That's going to be a crucial, crucial fight over the next few years. You have been listening to my interview with Aaron Lakoff about his new podcast on hockey and social justice called Changing on the Fly. To learn more about it, go to changingonthefly.podcast.wordpress.com. That's changingonthefly.podcast.wordpress.com.
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>